weekly prayer services, my pastor called on me and he asked me to pray. Normally, I would have been delighted to do so, but this time was a little different. You see, Greg asked me to pray for uh, a new class of church interns who had just been selected and were about to start their rotation through the program. I had applied to that internship, and I was really hoping to get in, but I didn't. And this was a great group of guys. It's, it's the group of guys I wanted to go through the program with. I was excited for them. But at the time that Greg called on me and asked me to pray for them, I was also dealing with a lot of disappointment and clearly a bit of envy. And I couldn't help but wonder if he'd done that on purpose. Now, I had been warned when I started uh, trying to get into that internship, it was probably going to take a couple tries. There were a lot of other students who were trying to get a spot on that internship. And there are only so many spots that were open. So I hadn't expected to get on the first time. Uh, I hadn't necessarily expected to get in on the second time. But this was like my third attempt. And I was starting to get near graduation. So I was getting worried that I wasn't going to be selected at all. And what made it worse was that there were guys who had been selected who hadn't been at the church as long as I had and who I knew hadn't applied as many times as I had. So I was battling some disappointment. But when Greg called uh, me uh, to ask and asked me to pray for these other guys, I, I got this sharp pain in my stomach, and I started feeling my cheeks getting red. I, obviously, I shook my head yes, and yeah, I'll do that. But I just felt this inward battle being fought. I, I really wanted to be there. I wanted to be in that internship. I had been denied something, but more than that, now I was being asked to pray for and to rejoice in that that had been given to somebody else. Talk about rubbing salt in a wound. I mean, that, that was hard. I mean, here I am years later, even after I did get into the internship, and I can still remember how I felt when Greg called on me and asked me to pray. It, it was hard, particularly because it put me in a position where I had to then, I had to die to myself. It put me in, in a spot where I had to think about someone else more highly than I thought about my own wants and desires, and even go and thank God for blessing someone else with something that I wanted even as he withheld that from me and to ask that God would work in their lives for the glory of Christ to do that thing. Maybe you've had an experience like that. Maybe, maybe you have had some goal or something you've been working toward, something that's really good, something that you wanted for all the right reasons, something you prayed for fervently, maybe for years, and sought the Lord about, laid at his feet, and then watch as it was given to someone else. What do, you, what do you do when God says no? When he closes the door on you and he gives that opportunity to someone else. Moments like that will test you. They will test your faith. They will test the true motives and the true desires of your heart. They will force us to ask ourselves where our true satisfaction, where our true joy really lies. As God works in us to produce the holiness and the image of Christ to the glory of Christ, he does not always give us what we ask him for. He has a purpose and he has a plan to bless us in his son, though it doesn't always look like what we ourselves might think is best. The path of faith 
is a path of self-denial. It is a path that trusts God and which trusts the purpose he has when he says no. It's a hard thing to do, but it's the path that we as believers have been called to walk. And God has equipped us for that, that path, even in the text that we find sitting before us this morning. This is an immensely practical passage for us. And so my prayer this morning is that God is going to use this text and equip us to trust him better. So let's begin with reading our text. If you will, please stand with me as I read from God's word. Once again, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 3, reading verses 23 through 29. Moses says, And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah, and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at, look at it with your eyes. For you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. For he shall go over at the head of this people. And he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, the book of Deuteronomy was written with the primary purpose of equipping the nation of Israel to keep God's law and therefore to thrive in the land of his promise. Moses spoke these words to the people while they were still on the east side of the Jordan River, preparing to go in under the leadership of Joshua. Moses himself was not allowed to go into the land for reasons we see mentioned here. And though it might be tempting to just treat this passage simply as the conclusion of Moses' brief history lesson, the reality is that this text is more foundational to the book of Deuteronomy than we might otherwise think. It actually helps to explain the purpose of why Moses took time to explain the words of the law to the people one last time and exhort them to live by it. Moses' instruction, his exhortation on the law to the people is sandwiched really between God telling Moses to go up to the top of Pisgah here and when he actually takes his leave of the nation and passes away there, which we see at the end of Deuteronomy. So besides being so foundational to the purpose and the point of the book of Deuteronomy, this passage also has some key and helpful instruction for us because it teaches us how to walk in faith when God does not give us what we ask him for. And that's really uh, what we're going to be looking at in our time this morning. So the main idea, the main focus of this sermon, of this passage that we're going to be looking at is a, really a question of how do we grow how do we thrive even in faith when God says no? We have 
three answers, three key aspects that we learned from Moses uh, on how to do that. So first we will see that we are called to seek God as our first priority. To be content when God says no, we must seek Him as our first priority. Second, we must remember our place before God. Remember your place before God. And finally, we learn that we must strive by grace to be faithful and content in the place where God has called us to be. We strive by grace to be faithful and content in the place where God has called us to be. Well, the first thing, the first key aspect to to growing and thriving in faith when God says no is to seek him first as our first priority. The key to contentment, the key to being content is to have a heart that is settled on and which is delighting in God himself. It is easy to feel a sense of satisfaction, a semblance of contentment when things are going well for us or when we get what we want. Think about the way that you feel when your team wins or how much better you feel when you get home after a day of work when everything went the way it was supposed to go. Those are the kinds of days we all like to have. Those are the kinds of days when it's easy to be happy, to feel satisfied. But happiness is not the same thing as contentment or the true satisfaction of the heart. You see, not every day is a happy day. Our team doesn't always win. Our work at times can feel oppressive and suffocating. We, we all have days that stretch us where we face need and where we face stress and where we face fear. Even on those happy days, we find ourselves wanting more, not being satisfied with what we have, or even living in fear that we might lose this thing that is bringing us this happiness. You ever, you ever sat there on the, at the end of a weekend and thought to yourself, oh, even in the middle of it, even woken up in the morning, God, I have to go to work tomorrow. Yeah. You're, it's, you're not satisfied. True contentment is a joyful condition of the heart which endures both in times of plenty and in times of need. In times where the sun is shining and in times when we are pressed and are in danger on every side. True contentment is a rare jewel which is found in God and which is the gracious inheritance of the person who satisfies themselves in Him. It is found in the power of God that is at work in the hearts of His people. It is found in the place of submission before Christ. This real contentment the sort of contentment that is the same sort of contentment which Paul describes for us in Philippians 4 verses 11 through 13 when he says I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, that's a well-known text, right? You see it all over football jerseys and basketball, all that stuff. It's completely off base. You'll notice that Paul's contentment here was never dependent on his circumstances. It was dependent on the reality of God's power which strengthened him and enabled him to face any and every circumstance in which he found himself. 
I mean, Paul wrote those words in a jail cell while he suffered for the name of Christ. If we're to live and to thrive in faith in any and every circumstance, the way that Paul talks about, our hope, our satisfaction, our joy, our treasure has to be planted in something that is bigger than our circumstances, which is bigger than the good days and the bad days. It has to be planted in God himself. And that is the first lesson that Moses teaches us about thriving in faith, even when God tells us no. In verses 23 through 25, Moses tells us about a request he made of the Lord after God had defeated King Sihon and King Og before the armies of Israel and had given their land and all their possessions to them. He says, And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, the good hill country in Lebanon. Now, this passage is assuming you're already familiar with everything that happened in the days uh, when Moses and the people were wandering in the wilderness, particularly uh, how Moses had been forbidden to enter the promised land. Uh, because of what he did in the presence of the people with his staff to the rock at Meribah. At that time, the people were in need of water. They were in a desert place. And they were so desperate for water, they had actually assembled themselves against Moses and against Aaron, and they were quarreling with him. They were putting him on trial. They were being the stiff-necked people that Moses says they were, saying it would have been better if God had just left them alone in their slavery in Egypt than to bring them to this place. Now, this is actually the second time that it happened. The first time, God had stood before the people on the rock and had told Moses to strike the rock with his staff. Moses had done so, and water had flown out from the rock for the people so that they had everything they needed. This time, God had told Moses to speak to the rock, but Moses' anger got the better of him, and he railed against the people, lifted up his hands, and struck the rock with his staff twice. Then comes one of the saddest and most terrible days in those wilderness years. You see, God did give the people water in that moment, but for their behavior before the people, he forbid Moses and Aaron from actually entering the promised land themselves. He told them, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses carried that sentence with him every day after that. It must have weighed on him as a great burden. After he had seen God bless Israel, protecting them from their enemies, giving them a foretaste of the inheritance that he was preparing for them in the land of Canaan, we see that Moses goes again to the Lord and asks him to remove this judgment from him. More than anything, Moses wanted to be there when God completed his promise, when he brought them into the land. And so we see that he went before the Lord and he pled with him, Lord, please let me go over and see what you're giving the people. Please let me be there when you do this. I, I love Moses' prayer here. 
Not only was Moses asking for a good thing, he was also asking for all the right reasons. How how can you read this prayer and not feel yourself to be moved? As Moses, the man who begged God to show mercy to others, who had interceded for Israel for 40 years, and now was asking God to lift the ban from him, to let him see God's power displayed in Canaan, to get to see the covenant God had made with his fathers and with the people come to completion. This this is the same Moses who spoke and conversed with God the way a man speaks with his friend. And so he's asking his friend, let me go. I want to see it. And we realize that it's not because of the land itself. It's because he wanted to see the rest of what God was going to do. He's asking to see God's power displayed. There is so much to commend to you about Moses' prayer here. This is the way you pray. Moses is a great model for us, showing us how to make our requests and our prayers known to God. He prayed about this the way that Jesus tells us to pray, regularly and in faith. He also shows us the key to true contentment because he pray, as he prays for this, the sole focus of his words are not on the benefits of what God was pouring out on the people, but on God himself. Listen again to what he says. Oh, Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your, your greatness and your mighty hand. Let, let that sink in. Let, let that sink in for a second. What a thing to say. Moses had seen and stood before the burning bush. He had heard the voice of God speak to him. He had spoken God's words to others. His hands held the staff of God's power as he wreaked havoc over Egypt. He had seen the armies and the might of Pharaoh's army shattered in a moment He had witnessed the presence of God in the pillar of smoke that went before the people by day and the pillar of fire that went before them at night. He met with God on Sinai. He saw the glory of God on the mountain, tasted the manna that fell from the bakeries of heaven, received the law, served God as his faithful servant. His face was glowing because he had been exposed to God's beauty. And yet, here he is on the threshold of the land of Canaan, praying, God, you have only just begun to show me your greatness and how mighty your hand is to save and redeem your people. Uh, What a thing to say. What else could Moses hope to see? I mean, for any one of us to see one of those things would blow us away. Well, What Moses hoped to see, what he wanted to see, was the promise fulfilled. He wanted to be there when God delivered the hope of Abraham to his people. He wanted to see the wonders that God was going to do for his people in making everything he had said come to pass. Ladies and gentlemen, this this is what a heart that loves God looks like. This This is the kind of heart that pants for God the way a deer pants for water. This is the same heart that we should have as we come and make our prayers and our requests known to God. God is not a vending machine for stuff. He's not an entry point to other blessings. He is the blessing. 
And if we're going to be content in each and every circumstance, we have to begin here by setting our hearts on God like this, thirsting and desiring God above everything else. Oh, that we would start each day with this same prayer. God, show me your glory. Satisfy my heart with yourself today. Lord, you have blessed me with every blessing in Christ. All I have is the result of your mercy and grace, but I would trade all of it to get more of you. I want more. The key to being filled and satisfied in any and every circumstance is to hunger and thirst for God above everything else. To adopt the posture of Asaph in Psalm 73 when he asks, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When we seek God like that, above all other things, even above the own, the gracious benefits which He so richly pours out on us day after day, we are aligning our hearts with Him, seeking Him first and foremost. And we can rest in the promise that Jesus gives us when He says He will add everything to us that we need. The key to fighting against envy, the, the key to insulating our hearts from idolatry is to submit ourselves to God and to seek Him supremely. The second key for us to walk in faith and contentment when God tells us no is to satisfy our souls by remembering our place before God. Beautiful as Moses' prayer is, as heartfelt and humble as it is, as wholesome as his desire was, God did not give Moses what he asked for. In verse 26, Moses explains to the people, But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Now let me ask you a question. As I read that, what is your heart doing right now? As you hear those words from God, how do you feel about that? Did, did it drop within your chest a little bit? Did your heart drop a little bit? Did, did it flare up a little bit? Did you start to think to yourself that maybe there's a little bit of injustice on God's part? Well, far be it from us to think so. God did not give Moses what he asked for. And there are a number of reasons why he denied Moses' request, even though it was for something that was good. And even though it seems, as far as I can tell, that Moses prayed this and begged God ad nauseum to let him enter the land. First of all, recognize that Moses had been forbidden to enter the land because he had sinned against the Lord. This denial was a consequence of Moses' own anger and the way he had dishonored God before the people. It was not a small thing for Moses to strike the rock the way he did. You see, something happened at Meribah that was bigger than the physical need for water and bigger than the physical rock that Moses hit. You see, God was doing something, saying something about the way he was going to deal with Israel and the sin of his people. The first time that had happened, the time when God had told Moses to strike the rock, which is recorded for us in Exodus 17, the people had tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord with us or not? 
They were trying to put God on trial when they were the ones who were proving to be faithless and wicked. God, in that moment, had told Moses to stand before the people and to take the staff, that same staff that was the instrument of judgment in Egypt, and to pass before the people. All of them knew what that staff had done. They recognized that this was the staff of judgment. They should have been afraid because the judgment should have come on them. But instead, verse 6, God tells Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. You see, just as God provided that lamb in the place of Isaac, so he provided that rock in the place of Israel. They all drank from the water that flowed from this, not just from this physical rock, but really from the spiritual rock, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. And he explains that the rock in that moment was Christ, who has offered an atoning sacrifice once and for all through his suffering on the cross. That was the first time. When Moses struck the rock this second time, after God had told him to speak to it, he was saying something wrong about God to the people. That's why this is so serious. He was not honoring God as holy, and he was not acting in faith. And he had, was, he had a position where he needed to represent that to the people. So, Edward Clowney remarks that Moses was not judged too severely for striking the rock when he had been told to speak to it. He points out, only once at his appointed time does God bear the stroke of our doom. The God who is the rock of Israel is the Savior, the God of mercy, who bears his own judgment for the sin of his people. The people had cried an accusation of unbelief. Is the Lord among us or not? Yes, the Lord was among them, among them in a way they could not have imagined. Before God gave his covenant at Sinai, he pledged his presence at Calvary. If, Moses, if God had allowed Moses to enter the land after all, he would have been sending a message to the people that obedience and faith were optional for enjoying, enjoying God and for enjoying his benefits. That's the exact opposite of the message of this entire book. Furthermore, it would have been a distraction from the salvation story that God was weaving together, bringing the nation of Israel into the promised land, not through the leadership of Moses, but through the leadership of Joshua. God didn't deny this good thing to Moses out of spite or on a technicality. He denied this thing to Moses because he had better things in mind, both for Israel and for Moses himself, as, as Raymond Brown points out, when Moses made this request, he couldn't think of anything more wonderful than entering Canaan. But God's plan was that he should enter heaven. The forcefulness of God's answer to Moses should not upset us. I think that it says something about the way that Moses was constantly asking God to let him enter the land. God had something better in mind for Moses and for the people. And although he loved Moses, and although Moses loved him, Moses was still the servant of the Lord, not God's equal. It can be tempting to forget that while God is good, he is not tame. God will be controlled by no one. 
He is the one who sits on the throne. We are his creatures. He has every right to rule over us. We owe him everything. The goodness of his mercy and the intimacy of his, his gracious relationship with us does not give us grounds to make demands of him. He knows what we need before we do. Our king has appointed his own son and the Holy, Center to, uh, the Holy Spirit to be inter- our intercessors before him. He does not always give us what we ask for, but he will never deny us any good thing he has appointed for us to have. To thrive in faith in every circumstance, we must be willing not only to treasure God above all else, but we must be willing to submit ourselves to God, to recognize that He is God and we are not, that He is our Father and we are His children, to understand that He sees all things and knows all things better than we do, that He is trustworthy, and that He is accomplishing better things than we could ever desire or even imagine. To prove this, let me show you two other examples where God said no, and it worked in favor of his sovereign plan. First, compare what Moses, Moses' prayer here, to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane on his way to the cross. When he prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That is the son of God praying to his father. It doesn't get closer, more intimate than that. Do you know what would have happened if the cup of judgment had passed from the lips of Christ? It would have passed to ours. There would be no redemption for us, even though he would have retained his own righteousness. That's what makes the rest of what Jesus prayed so powerful. Since he also said, not what I will, but your will be done. This is only a mere glimpse of that mystery Paul talks about in Philippians 2. When he talks about how the Son of God did not use his position as the Son to excuse himself from the cross, but instead humbled himself and suffered in our place and has now been exalted by God as Lord and Christ over all, as our Redeemer. Because God did not grant that the cup pass from the lips of Christ, we have been redeemed. God said, no, and therefore we have been saved. From there, think about a second example. Think about to what, what Brad read for us with Paul as he talks about his own suffering. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about how he pled with the Lord three times to have this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan that was afflicting him, taken away. But what did God say to him? No, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect or complete in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Moses was a great man, but he wasn't the man that God had chosen to fulfill the promise. He got to greet those promises from afar, and he trusted God's plan of redemption as a beloved servant. The point to take from this about our own contentment is that we must remember our place before God. He has rescued us out of the darkness of sin, sin, not through the law of Moses, but by the grace that is given through Christ. God does not always give us what we ask him to give, even when we ask out of right motives. 
When he says no, we must remember he is king, not us. And that what he has appointed for us is better than we could ever imagine. His grace is sufficient for us. We must follow the pattern of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, whose obedience to the Father won life for us. And that brings us to our third point this morning, the third key for finding contentment in every circumstance. And that is to find contentment where God has called you. Although God did not allow Moses to go into the land, he did allow him to see it. In verse 27, God tells Moses to go to the top of Mount Pisgah, to lift his eyes to the west, to the north, to the south, and to the east. And from there, Moses would be able to see everything. He would be able to greet God's good promises, even though he wasn't able to enjoy that land for himself. Even as God allowed Moses to see the land, he still had one task for Moses left to do. He tells him, charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land you shall see. When, uh, when Aaron Rodgers first came to Green, the Green Bay Packers, it was clear to everyone he was going to be the successor of Brett Favre. But Favre reportedly didn't take too kindly to Rodgers' presence on the team. I've heard him say that he didn't think it was his job to encourage or mentor Rodgers, and he definitely wasn't interested in handing the reins to a younger quarterback. I mean, honestly, who could blame him? It is hard to rejoice. It is hard to be glad when God gives something that you want to someone else. Moses pled with the Lord to let him enter the land, but that is not what God had appointed for him to do. He had appointed for him to charge, encourage, and strengthen his assistant, Joshua, to do that task instead. This, that would have been an impossible task for Moses to do if he had not desired God above all else. I mean, do you know how hard it must have been for, for Moses to follow through with that command? It meant he had to trust in God and die to himself and then care for the needs of his brother above his own. Of all the prayers that I have ever heard prayed which left their mark on my own soul, it's the prayers I have heard from the lips of couples who were barren, who had prayed for years that God would give them a child. And then praying before the rest of a church, asking mercy on other couples who had just found out they were expecting. It's the prayers of people wanting to be in places of ministry, praying for others as they were being sent out on the mission field. It's the tears of parents of new babies praying for couples who had longed for children, who, who had been, it seemed, granted, and then whose joy gave way to mourning because they had miscarried. I'll tell you, those, those experiences completely changed the way I read Romans 12, verse 15, where God instructs us, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. It's not conditional, is it? Rejoice with those who rejoice if you're feeling happy. No, nope, that didn't say that. Weep with those who weep if you can relate to what they're going through. No, it's rejoice in the joys of others and bear with others in their sorrow. That's how we follow the example of Christ. That's how we live the gospel out as a church body 
showing that our treasure is not in what we have, but it's in Christ and in Him alone. And therefore, I can rejoice when I see it in your life and in your life. Moses embraced his mission, even though it meant pouring himself out into someone else, something who was, someone who was receiving what he had asked for. Moses embraced this task that God appointed him to do, and accordingly, we see that he used him to prepare and strengthen and encourage Joshua for the task that had been appointed to him. Do you think Joshua would have been the same leader if Moses hadn't poured his life into him? I don't think so think God used him as a means. What can God do with you in that? God does not call us all to serve in his kingdom in the same ways. Instead, he makes us part of one body, equipped by one spirit to live for one purpose, the glory of our Savior and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. When we embrace that purpose for our own lives, when we treasure Christ above the glory we can get in service to him, then we're, in, we're graciously equipped to serve and to love one another as he's called us to love each other. And then we're able to bear with and rejoice with one another. It's good for us to have godly desires, to want to serve Christ in greater ways. But it is more important that we find contentment to eagerly serve where he has us right now as he equips us and gives us opportunity. God may have other things in store for you in the future, but he has set you where you are here and now for a purpose. And we must seek him in that. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't always give us what we ask. As we've looked at in the life of Moses, we see a man who wanted a good thing for the right reasons, but God denied him what he asked. The reason, as we've seen, was the greater glory to the name of Christ and to, for, of God and satisfaction for Moses and God's people. As we've considered God's calling on our own lives to be content in him, let us strive to live in the grace he provides so that he may be honored in each and every situation that we find ourselves in. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are our loving Father. We thank you that you have greater things in store for us than we even know. Father, as we, as we think about what you have done for us, we are forced to ask with David, what is man that you are mindful of us, or the son of man? Fathers, we see the way you have regarded us to give your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior, to elevate us with him in his life, even as you rescued us from sin through his death. I pray, Father, that we would be content in you and that whether we are in times of, of plenty or whether we are in times of need, whether we are in times that are joyful and exciting and glad or whether we are in times of suffering, that this joy will always remain because we are content in you, our King and our Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.